Welcome to the White Sparrow Media Internet Broadcast Network. Well, hello everybody and welcome to episode number 153 of Linux in the Ham Shack. We are finally back and recording again. I'm Russ, your host, K5TUX. Across the desk from me is Cheryl. Hello everyone. And uh, over in Montreal, Canada, we have Pete, VE2XPL. Good evening, Peter, or actually Pierre. I'll go ahead and hit the first story in our amateur radio segment for the evening. And that is a little bit of information on how to contact the International Space Station via amateur radio. We've talked about this in the past. Some ISS crew members make random, unscheduled amateur radio voice contacts with earthbound radio stations. This we all know. They can make radio contacts during their breaks, pre-sleep time, and before and after meal time. Astronauts have contacted thousands of hams around the world. The work schedules of the ISS crew dictate when they are able to operate the radios. The crew's usual waking period is from 0730 to 1930 UTC, and the most common times to find a crew member making casual periods are about one hour after waking and before sleeping, when they have personal time. They're usually free most of the weekend as well. The current crew work schedule is published on the NASA website, and you can find that at nasa.gov. We have a link to the specific timeline at isslive.com slash timeline slash index.html. That gives you an idea of the work schedule of all of the astronauts on board the ISS. And this also came from a website, www.ariss.org. That's Amateur Radio International Space Station.org slash contact dash the dash ISS. HTML. And what's nice about this particular page is that it gives you all of the information that you would ever need to know about contacting the ISS. So if you're wondering, you know, when to find them, what modes they're operating, you know, what the downlinks are, what the uplinks are, the call signs of the astronauts, and all that stuff. And in, it even includes the software or software recommendations for you to actually make contact with the ISS. It's a pretty comprehensive page for doing this kind of amateur radio work. So if contacting the ISS is something you want to do, you might want to check out that page and the link to both the schedule of the astronauts waking and working time and the information on how to contact the ISS will, of course, be in the show notes. Seriously, they're up on weekends. Come on. They're lucky. Well, they they got to have some downtime, you know. <laughs> it only costs like billions of dollars to get them up there, but let's give them the weekend off because we're the government. We don't work weekends. Hey, they ha- sometimes they just have to float, you know. It, you know it's, it's, <laughs> ha, 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 ha. And what did they do? It's not like they can go to the cinema. Or- <laughs> that, that's what I was going to say. It's not like they can you know, go just, out to dinner like in a movie. <laughs> so they could put like a really, really big drive-in screen. <laughs> Maybe. And they could uh, see they it. They could put anything really, really big up there. No, I mean something like on the Earth. Or they could, like, project a movie onto the ocean so they could see it from space. I don't know. Yeah. You'd need a big-ass projector for sure. That's, no that's true. I guess they could put one you on the ISS. Off the sun. <laughs> yeah, you could bounce something off the sun, maybe. Yeah, maybe. No one's steering the ship. That's okay. It's constantly falling around the Earth, so no one needs to be at the helm. And Ted in the chat room says, at 16 orbits in 24 hours, how long is their weekend? <laughs> yeah, maybe that's how they get them. Eh? It's in the collective agreement. <laughs> in actual time, it's three minutes. Get back to work, dogs. <laughs> yeah. All right. Who wants to tackle the next one? Pete. All right. Pete, Pete wants to do the next one. <laughs> Amateur radio operator facing a proposed eight thousand dollar fine for blocking broadcasts. Uh, It took a probe that spanned almost two years and a stealth visit to the Cincinnati area. But an FCC enforcement official says his bureau caught a Union Township amateur radio operator intentionally interfering with the transmissions of of his broadcasting buddies. 
Uh, the nine identified and now facing a proposed $8,000 FCC fine is named Daniel R. Hicks, uh, who earlier had volunteered in the search to find the culprit accused of using someone else's call sign to broadcast interference that evolved from being a nuisance into an obscene and racist affront. The nerve of some people. That's like... <laughs> I'll help you find the guy, yeah. <laughs> James Bridgewater, who is the district director of the FCC Northeast Region Enforcement Bureau office in Detroit, uh, said one of his agents sent April 7, 2014 to April 9, 2014 in the Cincinnati area. This happened a while ago. Yeah. Uh, investigating multiple complaints from amateur radio operators about interference with their radio transmissions. Bridgewater said the FCC Enforcement Bureau agent used mobile direction-finding techniques, and we all know what that is. Well, amateur radio people do. To trace the transmissions of Hicks' home on Forest Trail. These transmissions were a deliberate act to prevent other amateur radio operators from conducting legitimate communications, Bridgewater said. Uh, Hicks has until September 19th to pay the proposed FCC fine or challenge it with a detailed factual statement supported by documents and affidavits. Uh, the source uh, from this was actually uh, from Cincinnati.com, the town's website. I guess Cincinnati would be a city and not a town. <laughs> and, uh, it's a very, very long uh, link, so we'll put that in the show notes. Uh, but if you go to Cincinnati.com under news stories, uh, you could probably locate that. And uh, that's interesting. I'm curious to see what the uh, obscene and racist affronts were. I'm sure there's, there's no a lot more to the story than was read here, of course. We just do summaries of the stories. So if you're interested in more about what the the real allegations were and more about how they found the guy and everything, there is more to that in the story. And so if you go to that link, which you can click on from our show notes, then you will find out all the details about it, but I, I do think it's interesting that the FCC really is investigating and prosecuting these people who do this kind of thing. And uh, $8,000 is no small matter, for sure. No, you know, how many amateur radio people do you know who have money? Most <laughs> <laughs> you know, of us are dirt poor, and that's why we like amateur radio, because you can make all kinds of cool stuff cheap. Um, who knows, maybe this guy is, is, is in means, but uh, no matter what. Even people with money don't want to part with $8,000. That's true. And uh, the only amateur radio operators who have money are those who own flex radio systems. So. Ooh, that's kind of mean. <laughs> well, but probably true. Well, probably, but... At least they had money before they bought their flex radios. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now they're poor like everybody right. else. <laughs> now they're just regular amateur radio operators, like the rest of us. So they just happen to have a really fancy rig, so... All right, so moving on from that, we'll go to some more or satellite information or some more amateur radio in the sky, as it were. Chinese amateur radio satellites set to launch in early September. Chinese oh, wow. amateur satellite group CAMSAT said this week that nine satellites carrying amateur radio payloads have been delivered to the Taiwan, that's T-U-A-N, T-A-I-Y-U-A-N, not Taiwan, Taiwan, something like that, Taiwanan Satellite Launch Center in central China. CAMSAT CEO Alan Kong, Bravo Alpha 1 Delta Uniform, said they expected to launch between September 7 and it's September 9. All are part of the CAS-3 series of satellites. Quote, each satellite of the CAS-3 series will work independently, and they are made by different organizations. End quote. Kung told the AWRL. Each amateur radio complement has the same technical characteristics, but will operate on different 70-centimeter uplink and 2-meter downlink frequencies. Kung said a long March 6 rocket will carry the XW-2 and CAS-3 satellites into orbit, along with 11 other satellites. So this is actually kind of interesting, because I know when I've looked at the satellite trackers and stuff, and you compare what satellite or amateur radio satellites are in orbit right now, large number of them appear to be non-operational so the fact that more of them are being sent up in the near future within a couple of weeks actually of this recording uh so there should be 
more ability for amateur radio operators around the world to contact other amateurs using satellite technology, which is pretty cool. It is pretty cool, and it's not really as hard as it sounds. When I first started getting involved with them, I haven't played with them in a while, but when I first started getting involved, I was thinking, hmm, this is probably going to be like out of reach for me. But no, actually, no, just, just to listen, basically, all you need is, is a handy talkie, some cardboard, and 12-gauge wire. And it's simple as that. You make yourself a 70-centimeter antenna, and there you go. You can listen to the satellites as they come across, and that's a lot of fun. Sounds like a lot of fun. I've uh, seen the ISS and, and a satellite or two come over using the satellite tracker, but I've and, and I have actually, now that I think of it, tried to contact one. But if you're just using a, a handheld vertical antenna, that's really hard to do. You really need a yeah. circular polarized antenna to do it. Well, just to listen, it's easy. It's, it's easier for sure if you want to contact. It, it, it can be done, though. It can be done. Uh, but it's a little bit more challenging. Uh, if you uh, use a circular antenna, your chances are a lot better. Um, just playing with the software to see where the satellites are flying around is fun, too, if you just want to. You know, and there's a bunch of free ones that we've mentioned on, the, on this show before uh, uh, that are uh, used for Linux, of course. Uh, so, Yep, the major one being G-Predict. So if you uh, want to check out the satellite trackers for sure, just check out G-Predict. And actually, G-Predict is cross-platform, so you can use that on anything. But uh, it is a great satellite tracker, one we have talked yeah, about you, many, many times. In the uh, Chinese amateur radio satellite story, it says they're going to launch between September 7th and 9th. I'm curious. Did they just not want to tell us when? Or are they just like, yeah, we'll just do it sometime in there. I, I kind of read that like what happens with NASA in that they schedule something for a particular day and then if the weather's a little off or something like that they always scrub it. It, it doesn't take much to scrub a rocket launch. Yeah, but with NASA at least they tell you it's supposed to be on this date at that time and then if it gets scrubbed it's scrubbed. But right. Mind you, I haven't looked at the link. So. Uh, I don't know. Maybe the Chinese are much more hush-hush about their rocket launches. I don't know. I doubt they're more laid back about it. Yeah, we'll just do it sometime when we feel like it. <laughs> yeah, I don't think that's the issue. No. <laughs> uh, yeah, we're good now. Let's go. Well, let's go for a beer first. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm guessing the secrecy aspect is uh, have something to do with that. Probably, yes. All right, so moving on from our amateur radio topics, we're going to hit some open source topics. And are you going to read some of these, Cheryl, or not? You usually don't let me read Linux stuff, so... Well, it doesn't matter. You're just reading a story, so go for it. You can read this one. It doesn't have a lot of uh, no, no. Linuxy type stuff in it, so... Oh, by the way, that last story came from the ARRL. I don't think we mentioned that, so... Direct from the horse's yeah. mouth. Anyway, first of our open source topics. You can go read f- it. Why? Because... Because why? Because I have a feeling my microwave's going to... Or my, my microwave... Your microwave? My microphone's going <laughs> to die right in the middle of it, so... But, I'll go for it. Okay, you Linux go for Foundation it. releases Paranoid InfoSec Guide. This is interesting. The Linux Foundation Project Director Konstantin Ryabitsev, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, Mr. Konstantin, uh, has publicly, because we know he's listening, has publicly released the Penguinista's internal hardening requirements to help sysadmins and other paranoid tech bots and system administrators secure their workstations. Good idea. The baseline hardening recommendations are designed that balance security and convenience for its many remote admins. The document is designed to be adapted to individual admins' requirements, contains explanations justifying security paranoia. Can you really justify paranoia? Severity levels range from low to critical and escalate to paranoid for those willing to operate in blacked-out Faraday cages under more convenient but secure conditions. Raya Bitsev is a web and Linux security geek who manages Linux Foundation-hosted collaborative projects. He says the guidelines should be adjusted if they are out of step with organizational risk appetites. Uh, this is from the register.co.uk, and Fluffy has agreed with me. That's right. Um, I actually found links to this story on several websites, but I just cited the register one since that's the one I quoted. And there are no details in the stories that I found, but they all have links to the actual InfoSec guide uh, published by the Linux Foundation, and it's actually very, very thorough. It goes through all of the things you should do on your system, 
you know, what to lock down, what software to install, how to make sure you're secure from various threats. And each thing that they suggest also has a reason why you should do it. Some of them are ridiculously paranoid, and that goes to the title of the article, including not using Wine to install any Windows application just because you have the slight chance of being infected by Windows viruses does give you a lot of guidelines and it does give you actually operational specifics about security too for linux systems including what applications to run if you want to be more secure so if you want to go from i'm lightly secure but i have a conveniently operating system to i'm fully paranoid operating with a tinfoil hat faraday cage you can do anything from both ends of that range uh using the links found in the story so you've read through this is this just for sysadmins, or it could just like kind of an everyday geek. It, it does point out actual software applications and uh, information that anybody can use, whether you're a sysadmin or a workstation admin or just a home user. So just depends on your level of paranoia. You pick where you want to be, and it tells you what you need to do to be, as, to be at that level of paranoid, whether it's DEF CON 5 or 1. And you found this helpful uh, for your uh, everyday use, Russ, in your job? I didn't find it useful for me because I have a set level of paranoia and I have already set up the sort of security infrastructure that I use on my systems from a day-to-day basis. But I could tell by looking at it that, you know, if you followed the guidelines and chose your own uh, level of comfort with security, it would allow you to set up your system in a way that would be comfortable for you. That sounds cool. And, of course, it is free. We try to promote free as much as we can here, both free as in beer and free as in speech. All right, so our next open source story is Linux 4.2 has been released, which improves cryptography options. So speaking more to security, after eight release candidates, Linux 4.2 is now available, making one of the longer development cycles in the last few years. The longer cycle is likely only the result of an abundance of caution on Linus Torvald's part and some traveling, too. Among the big new features that land in Linux 4.2 is the Jitter Entropy Random Number Generator, which makes random number generation more secure than ever before. There are millions of white papers on the internet. You can Google for them about why random number generation is so important. But if you're not a security geek, it makes no difference to you. Uh, Linux. So you're not just using this to like pick the winner to your like you know office raffle, I guess. No, that would probably make no difference to you whatsoever, <laughs> unless somebody got right. really really agitated about the fact that you weren't using true random number <laughs> generation. So, <laughs> <laughs> and we all know that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Linux 4.2 also benefits from the introduction of Linux security module stacking, which will enable a more logical flow for enforcing and enabling security filters and policy. Overall performance of Linux security systems is also likely to get boost with the Linux 4.2 kernel by way of the introduction of Q-based spin locks. And I reduced the rest of the discussion of spin locks to nothing or relegated it to people clicking on the link and finding out about it because unless you really know a lot about the dynamics of how the Linux kernel works, you have no idea, nor do you care, how spin locks work. Just know that it will boost the performance of your machine, potentially, if you upgrade to the Linux 4.2 kernel. Now, Debian and a lot of distributions have not gone to Linux 4 yet. A lot of them are still in the late stages of Linux 3.16, I think, or 3.18, but some of the more bleeding-edge distributions have gone to Linux 4.kernel, one of which we are going to talk about in a minute or two. If you want to find out more about that, the link will be in the show notes, and it came from linuxplanet.com. Uh, There are several stories actually out there on the internet about the release of the 4.2 version of the Linux kernel. If you're uh, running a bleeding-edge Linux distro and you want to find out all the new crazy stuff that's come out in Linux 4.2, you can check that out. So, Cheryl, you can read this one. It's light and fluffy. Come on. It's light, fluffy story. Come on. Yeah, with a microphone that's freaking out. Well, give it a shot. I mean, pizza isn't doing much better, so. Well, that's true. So, (laughs) 
At least I can plug mine back in and it works again. Uh, that's right. Pete's yes. just sure. kind of garbled out the there. Canadian. That's right. That's right. We're gonna <laughs> stomp on the away. Canadian. That's <laughs> right. Slap you upside the head. <laughs> you come do it, pal. <laughs> <laughs> Pack a ladder. <laughs> Pack a ladder. That's good. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Carry on. <laughs> So, as of August 25th, Linux is 24 years old. Woo-hoo! I remember we read this story last year, but it was 23. Three, yeah, 23, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Linus Torvalds post on comp.os.minix, Usenix group, on uh, August 25th, 1991, heralded the start of Linux. Even though the first release of Linux wasn't available until October 5th of the same year, Linus says he's okay with celebrating either or both dates as the birthday of Linux. That post began, Hello, everybody out there using Minix. I'm doing a free operating system, just a hobby, won't be big and professional, like new, for 386, 486 AT clones. This has been brewing since April, and it's starting to get ready. That's it. That's it. That's the story. There's, of course, a lot more to it, and actually the... The full text of the original comp.os.minix post on Usenet is available uh, at opensource.com, arstechnica.com, and many, many other sites out there. Uh, I just love the fact that he says, just a hobby won't be a big yeah. and professional like yeah. you do. Yep. <laughs> nothing <laughs> no, big. No, nothing's going to happen with this project. No. <laughs> well, well, I, I remember we read this last year, but we now that think of it, it was in October that, I, that we mentioned it. And, uh, yeah, I remember reading that quote, too, so that's pretty funny. Yep. It's just nice to uh, celebrate every year, though. Yes, Birthday absolutely. We should have yeah. had cake. <laughs> that's true. We don't have any cake. We have cupcakes. We have cupcakes, yep. Uh, I'll just have to have a beer. Okay, well, do that. You should have a beer. <laughs> <laughs> We're all drinking hard liquor over here. So. Break. All right. I have something to add. Okay, go ahead. Add it. We have our friend Lord Drakenblut in the chat room. Yes. And he is there, um, and he just mentioned his open FOSS training project, which... Yeah, I went to that link. That's cool. Yeah. They're going to have an Indiegogo campaign to get it completely up and running, but, you know, so if anybody wants to donate to that, they can. You can go open, go to openfosstraining.com. Of course, we'll mention that in the show notes as well, but they're out to educate folks on how to use free and open source software. So. Yeah, there hasn't really been a central repository for getting information about how to use free and open source software, and I kind of gather that's what the purpose of this site is, to be a clearinghouse for how to do stuff in Linux. And I kind of gather that it'll be geared toward the, the noob, and of course, uh, Lord D will be happily telling me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of what I saw, so. Yeah, he hasn't said anything yet. No, he so. hasn't said anything yet, but the, you know, he could be washing dishes like Symbola, so. No, no, he's talking. Oh, he's talking. Uh, You're just not paying attention. They're going to be using, uh, let's see, um, video and written documentation. And they state that it's a difficult road and uh, there's a lack of clear and concise and easy to follow guidelines and documentation. So they're going to do that for us, which is awesome. That is awesome. So if you want to contribute to that, you definitely should. And the site there is openfosstraining.com. Cheryl already mentioned, and it will, of course, be in the show notes. So yep. check that out. Right, right here is the, uh, the last post on the page. It says, what, while what we create, like the software we love, will be free to use and share, Creating this content comes at a cost. Production machines and hosting aren't free, and we're reaching out to the community for help in raising funds. We need to launch this project. Shortly, we will release more information as well as the Indiegogo campaign for our endeavor. Uh, sign up for the newsletter. Go check that out. That they're, uh, of course, they're accepting money. Money's always good, but I wonder if they would like other kinds of contributions, uh, people to write, people to edit video, perhaps, uh, people to... Make them coffee while they're, I don't know, are they looking for money or uh, are they also looking for uh, other kinds of help? I'm sure they'll probably be looking for help too. So, yeah, I'm sure they're looking for all kinds of help, financial and otherwise. And and while you're considering a donation to FOSS or OpenFOSSTraining.com, you can consider other projects as well. For example, I don't know, Linux Linux in the the Ham Shack. Shack. Yeah. This this doesn't produce itself, and of course we have server and hosting fees and all that stuff as well. So, <laughs> so, so yeah, just while you got your wallet that. out, that's just right. go ahead and throw that's some right. money around. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had to throw that in there. Uh, of course. Yes. 
So let me see. I guess I'm going to move on to the last of our open source stories, and that is that Manjaro Linux 0.8.13 has recently been released. And we don't generally talk about distributions like Manjaro. We tend to talk about distributions that are Debian-based. This one is not. It's an Arch Linux-based distribution. But when it comes to Arch-based distributions, this one is a pretty cool one. It's a user-friendly GNU Linux distribution. Within the Linux community, Arch itself is renowned for being an exceptionally fast, powerful, and lightweight distribution that provides access to the very latest cutting-edge software. Manjaro Linux and Arch Linux have both recently been released with the Linux 4.2 kernel. Arch is traditionally aimed at more experienced or technically-minded users. As such, it is generally considered to be beyond the reach of many, especially those who lack the technical expertise or persistence required to use it. Manjaro aims to provide all the benefits of Arch Linux combined with a focus on user-friendliness and accessibility. Available in both 32- and 64-bit versions, Manjaro is suitable for newcomers as well as experienced Linux users. For newcomers, a user-friendly installer is provided, And the system itself is designed to work fully straight out of the box with features including pre-installed desktop environments, pre-installed graphical applications to easily install software and update your system, pre-installed codecs to play multimedia files, and much more. So if you want to try something a little different, I would definitely suggest trying Manjaro. I wouldn't go straight into full-blown Arch, but if you want to find a distribution that is a fully rolling release that is uh, compatible with lots of bleeding-edge software. I mean, they put in stuff that's, like, right up to the minute. In fact, the Linux kernel that was installed with 0.8.13 of Manjaro is the 4.2.3.8 version, or RC8. I'm sorry, it was the eighth release candidate of the Linux kernel, the one that came out just before Linux 4.2 was officially released. So this distribution is truly bleeding-edge, You can run all of the ham radio software on Manjaro if you want to. A lot of it you will probably have to hand build. So if you're a more experienced user or if you're a more adventurous user, Manjaro might be for you. And the Manjaro interface, by the way, is really slick. It looks nice and it does give you easy entry into Arch Linux. If you you go to Arch and try and install it by yourself straight as Arch Linux and you're not an experienced user, you will be frustrated. You will not like, but Manjaro has an installer and it gets you in really quickly. It's just not going to be the Debian or Ubuntu or CentOS experience for uh, the average ham radio user. But I put it out there because it is a very cool distribution and it does give you experience in something other than what we normally talk about. And if you want to find Manjaro, you can go to Manjaro, which is M-A-N-J-A-R-O dot github dot I-O. That's where you can find information about it and where you can download it from. Speaking of uh, open source and creative commons, um, I sent you guys a link for, did you see those little water bubbles, those little orbs of water that... uh, that I sent you, or did you not? Do you, do you not read my emails either, like Harrison? I I didn't get any emails. I don't recall so. getting any email, emails from you at all. Really? Okay. Well, I sent something. <laughs> let me uh, let me put that in the IRC chat so everyone could ooh and ah. But these are little little edible water bottle, little water orbs that are made. I watched the video. I'm not sure, but this these things are. Uh, are uh, supposed to be the answer to replacing plastic water bottles, which are just destroying the earth. You know, find them everywhere and anywhere. And these are just kind of little little gel orbs with water in them. Uh, they're about the size of, you know, a little bit bigger than a golf ball, a little bit than a golf ball and a tennis ball, it looks like. And they're just like these squishy little orbs of water that, that they're gel packs, and they have the water inside them. And they're ecological. And there's a video in the link that I posted in the uh, in the show notes, not in the show notes, but sorry, in the IRC chat. There's a video as to how they make them. I looked at the video and I can't tell. It's like calcium and stuff. Um, it's it's very geeky and, and mystery based, but it looks very easy. Really cool. Once you finish drinking it, what movie was it in? Like was it Ant? Where the guy like drinks a water bubble? You know. Uh, once you finish drinking it, you you're left with this teeny tiny bit of gel that's you know, completely 
anyways, this thing is licensed. I mean, we, we always talk about open source and creative commons. And usually we're talking about software, but a gel-based water orb, which is licensed under Creative Commons, so anybody can make them. And I thought it was a pretty cool thing. It's from a Skipping Rocks lab. It won some sort of environment award uh, back in March. So I'll go ahead and move on from our Linux segment on to, well, actually our open source segment, to Linux in the Ham Shack, our third segment. And the topic I wanted to bring up tonight is an APRS client that we don't really talk about. When we talk about APRS on this show, the application that we usually talk about is Zaster, which is the one that seems to be the most popular, but there is another one out there. It was written by Andrew Pavlin, Kilo Alpha 2, Delta Delta Oscar, and it's called Yak. Yes, just <laughs> Yankee Alpha Alpha Charlie, not Y-A-K. Yet, yet another APRS client. Uh, he wrote it a couple of years back, and he actually approached me at Hamvention a couple of years ago about it, and I don't think we've talked about it since then, which is kind of a shame. But anyway, I... But it's never too late. No, it's never too late. So it came to my attention again today, and so we're going to talk a little bit about yet another APRS client. Uh, on the website, which is www.ka2deltadeltaoscar.org, slash ka2 delta delta oscar slash yankee alpha alpha charlie dot html there's a lot of letters in there uh the uh, yankee alpha alpha charlie by the way is all caps uh he says yaac or yak as he pronounces it is a mostly platform independent java application for monitoring and contributing to the automatic packet reporting system network which was invented and trademarked by Bob Bruninga, Whiskey Bravo 4, Alpha Papa Radio. It's free software, it's an open source program licensed under the LGPL, and complete source code is provided. He says, feel free to create improvements and extensions to YAC, which is, by the way, how I'm going to continue to pronounce Y-A-A-C from here on out. YAC can be used as a standalone APRS client, an APRS RF Internet Gateway, iGate, or as a AX.25 Digipeter. It supports 16 different data reporting views as delivered and can be extended with user-written plugins to add more functionality. YAC's map rendering does not depend on Internet connectivity, so it can be used wherever a portable computer and radio slash TNC can be located. It's got links to where you can download it. There's a mailing list. There's a Yahoo group for alpha testers where you can get tech support and all that. The links to it, to all of those things, are on the website that I've already mentioned. And the rest of this page is actually dedicated to downloading the source code and installing and running Yak, yet another APRS client. Now, as previously stated, this client is written in Java. So any system that supports Java, which should be just about any system there is, should support running this application. I decided to test this out earlier today and see if that was, in fact, true. I recently got Linux Debian 8.0, or no, 8.1, actually. I installed Debian 8.1 on Charles' laptop and my laptop, both of which are using UEFI instead of standard BIOS, then installed the JAR file, the Java application file, which is based, JAR stands for Java Archive, by the way, on my system, Debian 8.1 on an HP laptop, which came with Windows 8.1, but that's neither here nor there. So I have a 64-bit version of... Uh, Debian 8.1. It could be 64-bit or 32-bit. It does not matter in this case. The only thing I had to do in my specific instance is there was a package missing because I'm running a 32-bit version of Java on my system, even though it's a 64-bit install, because in order for me to run Zimbra Desktop, which is an email and collaboration client, I have to run a 32-bit version of Java. Because for whatever reason, Zimbra Desktop does not support 64-bit systems yet, which is ridiculous because it's been around for like six years now. Anyway, I was missing the package libxtst6 
in the i386 architecture. That was the only thing I was missing. Once I installed that package, I was able to run java-jar yaac.jar and my yaac or yak started up just perfectly. So if you have a Windows system and you have downloaded Oracle Java, then you will be able to run it. It does have one caveat on the installation procedures on the website, and that is that if you're running the headless version of OpenJDK, you cannot run Yak because it doesn't support the AWT plugin for Java. You have to have a full Java runtime environment in order for it to run properly. So just keep that in mind if you're going to try this out for yourself. Now, one thing that I thought was really nice about this is once I ran the Java file and it popped up, it gave me a GUI window interface, and then it said, it gave me like a, a wizard installer. It said, would you like Yak to help you install this piece of software? And I was like, well, since I've never used this piece of software before, yes, I would like some help. Uh, so then it guided me through the rest of the installation process. It asked me for my call sign. It asked me what kind of installation I was, whether I was mobile or local, whether I had a GPS receiver or not, whether I was message capable, whether I was going to run an iGate, all that kind of stuff. It basically walked you step-by-step step through the installation of setting up an APRS station, which was very nice. And I am definitely not APRS savvy. I know nothing about it because I don't use it. Um, but I know people do use it, and I wanted to take a look at this. So that is very cool. Uh, it uses, for its mapping capability, OpenStreetMap, which, of course, is uh, an openly licensed mapping database. So you have uh, access to that as well. It supports all kinds of hardware, uh, both for TNCs, GPS, and computers. It can run on Windows, of course, because Windows supports Java. It can run on Macintosh, because Macintosh supports Java. It can run on Raspberry Pis, because Raspberry Pis support Linux. And that, of course, supports Java. For TNCs, you can use MFJs, Kenwoods, Bionics, AGWs, IDSpeds, Direwolves, UZ7HO sound modems, and all kinds of stuff. And all of this is outlined on the page, of course. It uses any GPS receiver that is compatible with the GPSD daemon. It has a link to give you information about whether your GPS receiver is, in fact, compatible with that. It is compatible with Garmin GPS 2 Pluses, Bionics GPS 2s, DeLorme Tripmates, and the GPS receiver built into the Kenwood THD72 Alpha. And it's also compatible with weather stations, including Pete Brothers, Ultimeter 500 and 2000s, and any weather station that uses the WXNow.txt file interface. It does reporting, it does message sending, message handling, and, you know, all of the functions that you would normally expect out of an APRS system, including beaconing, gating, uh, and so forth. You know, once you have it installed, which is basically just downloading the jar file, it also has a binary file which can be run on 64-bit Linux systems. So if you happen to have a compatible one with that, you can do that. Otherwise, you just download the jar file and run it using your installed Java runtime environment, assuming you have all of the dependencies satisfied. Uh, configuring, like I said, it runs you through a straightforward, helpful wizard to get you running. And then, of course, there's a configuration file once you get past that point if you need to make changes. There's also a GUI interface where you can make changes to your config as well. Like I said, maps are done using the OpenStreetMap project. You can display them by default uh, right in the, w the GUI window provided by Yak. It also supports the worldwide terrain slash elevation datum made public by the U.S. Geological Survey, the USGS. Uh, it's built in, and you can also put weather radar overlays onto your maps. All of that information is included on the website that I mentioned earlier. Uh, the link to that will be in the show notes. But if you're having issues running Yak, and this is something you want to try as opposed to Zaster, you can check out the built-in help. There's a help file and index and all of that built into the application itself. There's an FAQ, which is also built into it too. F1 brings up all of that information for you once you're running the application. If that doesn't satisfy your help needs, there is, as I've already mentioned, the Alpha Tester mailing list. A link to that is on the webpage. 
Uh, there's a bug tracker, and there's a private bug tracker as well, both uh, run by KA2DDO and one that's on SourceForge. So there's uh, lots of help, lots of community support for this application, and there are also some plugins that you can use in it. Two that are listed here on the webpage are the Telemetry Alarm plugin, which is to monitor the telemetry of transmitting stations if the transmitting reporting is out of selected ranges. And there's also a sound plugin to create different effects, which are triggered when certain events happen inside the APRS network. And of course, it's extensible. It's uh, released under the LGPL. So if there's something you want to add to this, you certainly can. I believe that's about all I can say about it because I really don't know all that much specifically about APRS itself. But this definitely sounds like a really cool... And from what I saw, a fairly intuitive alternative to the Zaster interface, which when I fired that up, I was pretty much lost. But taking a look at the Yak interface, I could actually kind of see what was going on. And it was actually able to locate or enter the coordinates of my home QTH. And it allowed me to say that I was operating fixed station and that I could beacon my location and was set up for messaging as well using the APRS network. And that was all fairly intuitive just by running through this setup wizard. I may check this out a little bit further. I don't have any GPS units that I can use with this right now. But you can get on the network and you can send and receive messages even if you're just using a home base station uh, without GPS or weather capability. It looks like a cool application and I want to thank uh, Kilo Alpha 2 Delta Delta Oscar for mentioning to me in Hamvention and my actually finally remembering to tell you all about it. So, P, do you use APRS at all or no? Yeah, I've played around with it quite a bit actually. Um, mostly when I have my RV, I like to uh, beacon when we're out there. I've sold the RV since uh, because uh, gas is very expensive here. I haven't played with it in a while. I love APRS. I think it's a cool thing just for keeping track of your friends. I mean, we don't use it in, in I mean, it's got a lot of, you know, club applications and uh, doing search and rescue and, and yada, yada, all kinds of stuff. Um, basically, I just like to beacon my position so that my friends could follow me. If you go on APRS.fi, you can kind of see a map of where everybody is. You could do a search by call sign. And uh, I just kind of like to have my friends see where we're going when we're traveling around. Uh, it's been about a year and a half uh, since I took my Kenwood out of the uh, RV, so I haven't played around with it in a bit. But yeah, APRS is very cool. Yeah, cool. I know a lot of our listeners use APRS, and it's just something I've never really gotten into, but maybe it's about time. I don't know. I've got GPS receivers here. I don't know if any of them are compatible with uh, like USB computer interfaces, but it's something I could certainly check out. Yeah, um, actually, on my Kenwood, uh, there's this uh, little tiny GPS receiver that's put out by a company called Green Lights Lab. This thing is about a just a GPS uh, that's about an inch by an inch, and it interfaces with the uh, with the Kenwood, and um, just kind of pops onto the back, so you don't even need to. Uh, but there are certain uh, models of GPS that are compatible, and you can get a list of them depending on what setup you're using. You can usually find uh, older GPSs. I bought an older Garmin. My, my, the Garmin that I bought, I picked it up off one of the swap shop websites for a ham radio, and it's about a 10-year-old Garmin. I paid 30 bucks for it, and with a few homebrew cables, you can interface it to your rig and uh, basically uh, start uh, playing around. All right, that sounds cool. I will do a little bit more investigation. So if this sounds like something that would interest you, and maybe you're a Zaster user, and maybe you're not, or maybe you're just wanting to get into APRS, you could check this out as a client that would work for you. Uh, it is certainly Linux compatible, or even if you're you know, still not comfortable with Linux and maybe just moving over, it runs on Windows and Mac as well, or any other system that operates uh, Java. You can even do it from home. You don't even need a beacon. You could just do everything from the internet if you don't want to, you know, because let's say you don't want to go out and spend all that money yet. You just want to play around with it. You could install software onto your computer depending on what you're using. There's something for every platform, every flavor, for every use. And uh, you could just kind of beacon as a home station. Of course, your home usually isn't moving, so you're beaconing a set location the whole time, but you can still do it. Right, and Symbola in the chat room has given us a link to www.dxmaps.com, 
which I went to real quick, and it looks like it's a real-time APRS reporting link based on uh, a map, and you can click and see who's uh, beaconing on uh, different uh, modes and stuff around the world using, I'm presuming this is APRS. It doesn't say that, however, but considering that's the topic of discussion, I hope this is APRS-based. <laughs> We'll just say it is. Yeah, we'll just say it is. Anyway, if you want to see like uh-huh. who's doing what around the world, basically uh, reported, I believe by APRS. Uh, check out www.dxmaps.com. And I think with that, we're done with our first three segments, which means we move on to music for this. My time. turn. My turn. Oh, what? <laughs> you gonna jump in? What? I'm well, gonna jump in about the music. Well, no. Oh, you're gonna jump in about the music. All right, go oh, for it. Cool. Well, okay. So the song that Russ has picked today is one of my favorite songs by a friend of ours, Jonathan Colton. The name of the song is A Talk with George, which to give a little backstory regarding the song, if you don't know, the song is written about George Plimpton, who was a jack of all trades, basically. He was a journalist, a writer, a literary editor, actor, amateur sportsman. He helped found uh, the Paris Review. Uh, He was also famous for participatory journalism, which you'll hear about in the song. But Jonathan actually wrote the song for a contest called the Plimpton Project and actually won first place with it. So, and it is actually one of my my favorite Jonathan Colton tunes. It's also one of my favorite Jonathan Colton tunes. It's it's getting along with Curl, along with Curl, but that's that's actually not one of my favorites. I mean, uh, I like Curl, but I like a lot of other stuff a lot better. But I do like A Talk with George. Again, you have all the backstory about that. The song is getting a little long in the tooth now. I didn't actually realize that it was released in 2006. Uh, so it has been out there a while. But this is a great Jonathan Colton tune. He's one of the premier Creative Commons artists out there. There are a lot of them. But Joko sort of made his name by releasing stuff, Creative Commons and his music continues to proliferate, and he continues to put out great stuff. So uh, we will listen to a talk with George, and then we'll come back and, uh, I don't know, talk about some other stuff. Sound there, good? There's a little tidbit of information about Mr. Plimpton. What's that? He actually went to school at uh, Phillips Exeter. He went to school at Phillips Exeter. Which right. is where where Russ is actually from. <laughs> so. <laughs> I didn't know he went there, but there. Yep. All right. Sounds good. Here's a talk with George by our friend Jonathan Colton. There's a tall thin man standing in the shadows When he calls your name, his voice is strong and clear It's a dark and smoky place, so you can't quite see his face He pulls you close and whispers in your ear And he tells you he was born into some money But it didn't mean he had to sit around And he knows a thing or two About the things that you should do If you don't want to take life lying down First of all, hang out a lot with Hemingway Spend some time fighting bulls in Spain You should go three rounds with Archie Moore and Sugar
oxtail wear a tie Show a little grace if you should fall Don't live another day unless you make it count There's someone else that you're supposed to be Something deep inside of you that still wants out And shame on you That's a talk with George by our friend Jonathan Colton. I love that song. I'm actually finding some some interesting information about Mr. Plimpton. Apparently, uh, John F. Kennedy sent him in as the president of the United Nations. Oh, excuse me, deputy ambassador to the United Nations from 61 to 65. He has also been, back to the uh, movies in the Hamshack, Snicker, snicker. He was the psychologist in Goodwill Hunting. Really? Yes. Um, he was the Tom Hanks antagonistic father in Volunteers. He was in television commercials for Intellivision by Mattel. Wow, I remember Intellivision. Yeah. yeah. He's also been in uh, The Simpsons. I'm spelling as fast as I can as the host of the Spelly Olympics. Spell Olympics, I guess. Yeah. yeah. And he was the grandfather of Dr. Carter on ER. Well, how about that? And I remember seeing the grandfather of Dr. Carter um, on ER. Yep. Very interesting guy. He's kind of like the guy from the Dos Equis commercial. He's the most interesting man in the world. All right. He's probably based on George Plimpton. So. Yeah. <laughs> So that's a very cool song. We've loved that one for a long time, and we always love to hear it when Jonathan performs it live. So with that, we're going to move on to our one bit of feedback that we have this week, and that is a comment from Joe Drassal via Facebook, and he says, I just stumbled onto Linux in the Hamshack podcast. What a great trip. All right. Welcome. It, we're trippy. That's right. <gasps> Keep it going. It's great. I love it. Yay. Yay. <sighs> yeah, like we're not going to include that bit of feedback. Anyway... <laughs> Thanks, Joe. We really appreciate you listening, as well as all of our other listeners. So, uh, And if you want to send us feedback telling us how great we are, you know, you'll be on the show without question. Yeah, it's better than the feedback we get about we suck. Well, we only got one, and I like to play that one a lot. Except I don't have that one handy, so you I can't play You don't have it handy? No, I don't have that one handy. Oh, <laughs> so well, that sucks. I think I've gotten rid of that one. You shouldn't get rid of that one. <laughs> Sometimes you need to remind yourself that sometimes you just suck. <laughs> sometimes, yeah. Thanks for the feedback. And like I said, we love feedback here, both voice feedback, email feedback, or by any of the social media networks that we happen to be a part of. So if you want to send us feedback, please do. We love to hear from all of you guys. And I checked, by the way, on our download statistics. Just recently, we passed three quarters of a million downloads on this program. So, Yeah. Excellent. That's like for last week's episode? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wish it were. Yeah. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, that's nothing to sneeze at. That's the, that's very nice. Excellent. Yeah. Congratulations. because Rich hasn't left us any voicemails lately. Well, that's true. We haven't heard from Rich yeah, in a while. Yeah, that's true. Oh, well, Rich, we're busy doing family stuff. I know. So we're calling good. for Rich now. We'll, <laughs> now he'll, he'll crawl out of the woodwork, I'm sure. So. His voicemails yeah. are always fun. They so. are fun, yeah. We've come to Cheryl's Recipe Corner. Yippee! Yay! Or something. Yay. Yeah, so. so that's where I play the... <laughs> yeah. I see. The recipe that I picked this week is because football season is now upon us, and folks here like to party on game day. You know, tailgate parties, parties at somebody's house parked on the couch, so whatever. So friends of, you know, tons of friends come over, watch the game, and eat. And while I have not tried this recipe, a friend sent it to me recently and said that it was most excellent for her Patriots games, parties, and Russ knows who I'm talking about. <sighs> <laughs> so we're going to pass it along to you. And it's called Beer and Brats Nachos, and it includes um, some slices of bratwurst links, uh, frozen peppers and onions, uh, shredded cheese, flour, onion, olive oil, garlic, all the stuff to make the cheese sauce with. And you can either use beer or beef broth, although she 
strongly recommended Samuel Adams beer. <laughs> so, oh, I'm, gee, I wonder why. Yeah, go figure. <laughs> and we're <laughs> we're talking about my cousin anyway, um, and some tortilla chips, and you just throw everything together, cook it, throw it together, and poof, you have beer and brats nachos. So. And the recipe will, of course, be in the show notes. I'm assuming you mix everything together except the nachos, and then you put the stuff over the nachos. Well, you, you know, you've got to cook the sausage and warm up. You know, it, her recipe actually called for a frozen onion and green pepper, like fajita veggie right. type mix. Um, or you can slice up your own. Oh, we did get a mention, by the way, from the Faux Time podcast, which we mentioned on the last show. They mentioned us back. I don't know if they've mentioned us on their show. But they've mentioned us in a couple of their uh, social media segments, so that's very cool. So thanks, hey. Faux Time Podcast. Hey, so maybe we need to get the the guy from the Faux Time Podcast over here. We should interview him. Yeah, we should talk to him. So anyway, check out the beer brought nachos. That sounds good to me. And actually, speaking of beer brats and nachos, we're going to a ball game tomorrow. Woo! So anyway, moving on from the recipe corner, you have another segment to do. It's our social media roundup. Yay. Yay. Yeah. Okay. So uh, this time for donations and subscriptions, but all of these folks are monthly and we have Jeremy Hall, Scott Pettigrew, Bill Arcand, Michael Swanson, and Steve Conklin. Uh, We have several new likes on Facebook this time. Of course, it's been a few weeks since we've done a show, but uh, Jack Hoffman, William Spencer, Joe Driscoll, Ken Dennett, Ted uh, Gomer, I'm assuming, Ktor, K4, Seedine, K4 Seedine is what I would guess. Okay, all right. And Bronny Ackerman on Google Plus was Mark Wagner. We're back to Twitter now. Um, at Orlando220, at W6GRV, at P Johnson6628. At EI7JC, at Boldwheels, at Buster underscore Stone, at N5KWD, at K4CDN, at Tim Adsit, and at Andy G West. And YouTube, Kevin Mills joined us. Mailing list was Ted Williams. And of course, we didn't have any merchandise sales. So. Yeah. And Ted Williams is our own WA0EIR. That's that Ted Williams. So he joined our mailing list finally, even though he's been listening to the show like since the very beginning. Well, he doesn't need to be on the mailing list if he listens. Well, that's true. That's very true. Although we, we have announced like contests and stuff previously on the mailing list. When so. was the last time you sent anything out on the mailing list? Oh, it's been a year or two. So Yeah, I was going to say, I haven't seen anything in the last Shut up. forever. Shut <laughs> up. You want me to blame you? Yeah, Here, right. it's Don't blame call me time. out on anything. No, <laughs> no, no, that's not how this works. So, oh, sorry. Uh, Symbola is asking, do we have a link to Photon? Sorry. I don't think I said Photon. I think I said Photime. It's F-O-T-I-F-O yeah. space T-I-M-E. Amateur Radio 15, as in Amateur Radio 15.com. That's where you can find the faux time podcast that's our social media roundup and because we're at the end of the social media roundup it also means we're at the end of the program yeah <laughs> oh don't oh, sound wait. so excited about that no, Come on. Pete, pete is probably like yes yeah, just hurry up so i can go to bed all right folks that's the end of the program so i'm going to hit the button and then we're going to get on out of here and i like hear music so that means we're getting done sound good to you all right good to me. Good. all right You can become an LHS ambassador. Visit the website for upcoming events and information on how you can represent Linux in the Ham Shack at a nearby LinuxCon or HamFest. And as I've already said, we love feedback. You can email us at info at lhspodcast.info, comment on an episode on the website, post on Google+, Facebook, or Twitter, or leave us a voicemail at 1909-LHS-SHOW. That's 1909-547-7469. You can visit our IRC channel, that's hash LHS podcast on the Freenode network. You can also subscribe to our mailing list, the link to that's on the show notes. We have merchandise from coffee mugs to t-shirts and all kinds of other stuff at www.cafepress.com slash LHS podcast. A little bit of those purchases goes to helping out the show. You can also help out the show by clicking on the sponsored ads in the right hand column of the website. 
You can listen live to us every other Monday night, 8 o'clock p.m. Central Time. That's Tuesday at 0100 Zulu in the summer, 0200 Zulu in the winter. Our recording schedule, countdown timer, and all the information you ever want to know about the show is on the website, which is at lhspodcast.info. So I want to thank you personally to all our listeners, past, present, future, live, quasi-live, dead, zombified, whoever you are. We appreciate each and every one of you. We if love you're taking you all. That's right. We love you all. <laughs> and you have been listening this fortnight to Linux in the Hamshacks, episode number 153. And this is Russ, K5TUX, coming to you live from Studio 3D in Southwest Missouri. That's Pete up in Montreal, V2XPL. And if there's any zombies listening, we want to hear from you. That's true. <laughs> if you're a zombie, email us. And Cheryl's across from me. And, and, and we'll be next time, too. So we'll see you in a couple weeks, folks. Take care. Bye-bye. Delicious.